No cold open today, because here at the Hauntsville Cryptcast, we're always hot and spicy on the mic. But with Valentine's Day coming up, we're getting a little sultry. Today we're going to be talking about some of our favorite horror couples. And some of our least favorite horror couples. I'm Anthony. I'm Doza. I'm Anna. So, this was a fun research project. I mean, I bet just thinking about horror couples off the top of your head, you guys could name like 10. It's such an overused trope, but it works. I bet we were probably thinking of all the same 10. Well, I'm probably thinking of the same 10 that all of our listeners are thinking of, because I don't know any of, like, the deep cuts. Like, when you were, like, listing stuff off, like, a second ago, I was like, oh, yeah, there was a couple in that movie. <laughs> because it's become so commonplace. Um, Yeah, I didn't look up any bad horror couples, because I thought we were going for good horror couples. I could think of, like, a million bad ones off the top of my head. Well, that's just it. I wasn't looking for bad ones. It was just the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, oh, man, these are a bunch of characters I hate. But they're also the couple is one of the best tropes to watch die. It's that Friday the 13th sex kills stereotype where, you know, you, you either they're and they're either the hero or they're the first to die. Well, in most circumstances, but there is one final couple. Well, OK, it's debatable. But in Friday the 13th Part 2, Ginny and Paul are a really good couple throughout. And they're technically the only final couple. Because at Ever? the end, they're the only one that I could think of. I may <laughs> be wrong. They're not the only one. They have to be. Can you think of any more? <laughs> I looked up final couple. I couldn't find anything. I, I, I tried to look and I couldn't think of anything else. It is very rare for the entire couple to make it out at the end. Usually one of them goes, and it's usually because at least one of them is shitty. Yeah, it's usually the shitty boyfriend that dies, and then the girl goes on to be the final girl. That's usually the way that it works. But with Ginny and Paul in Friday the 13th Part 2, it's sort of debatable because you don't actually know whether Paul dies at the end, but he doesn't. Because at the end of the movie, they both kill Jason, well... Paul kills Jason while he's trying to kill Ginny. And then Ginny wakes up and she's being taken into the ambulance at the end of the film. And she goes to reach for Paul and can't see him anywhere. And then that's where it's left. Like, no one knows where Paul's gone. Man, I don't remember anything about Friday the 13th Part (laughs) 2. Well, I mean, I I understand what Anna's saying. Like, just, just hearing that, I got to picture it again in my head. And I got, like, a quick chill. It is, it's, it's very, it's a very interesting moment. There are a couple that I can think of just off the top of my head of like horror movie couples that do work together and persist throughout, mostly because like that's the central theme of uh, of the movies, like the the Happy Death Day movies. Are... I was just gonna say Tree and Carter. Yeah. So their whole plot is like almost the plot of the movie. Warm Bodies is is a love story. It's Romeo and Juliet with zombies, where the the they do both make it to the end. Admittedly, one of them is already <laughs> dead. I was gonna say, <laughs> I guess that counts. But he like comes back to life at the end. I don't know. It's weird. Other other than other than that, like Anna said, like I can't think of any off the top of my head where both of them make it. It's usually a like a a trope, like Anthony, you were saying, where one of them doesn't make it to further the plot development of the other character to push them either to a brink or to destroy them and have them need to recover from that over the course of their character. But it's, it's it's very rare that, you know, a couple that is a main point or focus in the movie makes it to the end together. I mean, this dynamic has been around since the dawn of horror, since the beginning of Gothic stories, even, You know, Anna, just to throw it back to one of our favorites uh, in the 30s, White Zombie. It's the classic gothic castle story. And there's a bit of a love triangle that happens in that. So it's tough because the couple that starts the film off falls into that trope. But the couple that ends the film, which has kind of been there from the beginning, makes it all the way through. That is true. Quite a good example. I thought you were going to go the Dracula route already. Oh. I was yeah, thinking I of Jonathan and Mina. Because, I mean, they don't make it all the way to the end, so the, that's not applicable. But, like... I don't think they have to make it to the end to be a good couple. No. Hold up. Do I not remember Dracula right? They make it. Mina doesn't. Yeah, she does. She gives birth to Quincy. Yeah, she does. 
yeah, but like even the, like before everything gets really fucked up for both of them, bless them. Then they're in like this really cute little like long distance thingy going on with their little love letters and like personal bias. Well, yeah, I have a personal bias against long distance relationships, obviously. Against? <laughs> but, yeah, what like... the fuck? I'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like little love notes to each other, are really, really cute. And they're like always standing up for each other and willing to. I don't like the whole like willing to die for each other thing because that's like super dramatic. I don't know. It's just a really sweet bond that they hold through the whole thing. Yeah. The, the majority of relationships in film, I hate. I'm like the opposite of that. I have a, as a person, a tendency to over romanticize everything in life. So when I see a portrayal of like a couple or like love in a movie, I latch onto that like so quickly. There is that horrible breed of couple in horror films where people romanticize killing and like think that that's some romantic thing for couples to do together and think that the whole like, Jokahali style relationship is romantic when it's not. Like anyone who thinks that's a romantic situation to be in, please get help. There's a difference between the people that like understand and appreciate the Joker as a character, and then there are others that idolize the Joker as a character, and that's where it becomes a problem. They're interesting characters, but when it comes to the point where you're like, oh, I want to be like them, like, all right, maybe we'll dial it back a little bit because that's kind of fucky. So we were just talking about how uh, I have a tendency to over-romanticize couples in film. Uh, Anna has a weird disdain for any sort of affection on screen because she's no. a fire woman. <laughs> I was going to say, she was just gushing about Mina and Harker. We were just talking about, actually, uh, how like the over-romanticization of problematic couples like that are, are an issue. Oh, like Chucky and Tiffany? Oh, come on, dude. <laughs> I, although, I do love Jennifer Tilly in those movies. So do I. I. Everybody gives the sequels hell, but man. Oh, wait. Can we not? Seed of Chucky isn't a film. Like, that doesn't deserve time. But Cult of Chucky is a ton of fun. And she's fantastic. She really I is. love Jennifer Tilly. I feel like she can do no wrong. Let's talk about this for a second. That's a, that's a good jumping point. Yeah. So, like, they're clearly the antagonists in the franchise and their relationship stems from a point of obsession more than anything but they're also pretty abusive towards each other yeah they're very much that like joker harley kind of couple you see a ton of people who like cosplay them together and like yeah it's cute and it's a fun gimmick throughout the series but like they're awful oh yeah they're not a couple that anyone should aspire to be Bride of Chucky is a hilarious film, but, like, you really wouldn't want to be in that situation. And it's even addressed in Bride of Chucky that, like, hey, Tiffany, you deserve better. What the hell are you doing with this guy? Sort of thing. Like, and she's like, oh, but I loved him. Yeah, you don't understand. Yeah. It's a terrible representation of female. (laughs) I'm sorry. Was that your Jennifer Tilly impression? (laughs) No, I'm stuffy. Okay. I can't, I can't do, she's got such a unique voice, I couldn't even begin to try to do it. She does, and in other news, we're going to have an open spot on the podcast we're replacing Doza. For Because Bad Tilly? <laughs> yeah. I'm saddened by this. We could never. But well, you're going to you're going to replace me with Jennifer Tilly. We could never. Oh, wait, but that's not a bad It's a very bad idea. I'm just idea. kidding. Because she would just be like. Good luck getting her. Wait, no, I was going to do it again. <laughs> The introduction of uh, Tiffany into the Child's Play franchise is when it like, they started leaning into the campiness of it. And that's when there's very much a tonal shift and you almost start like rooting for for them to be doing well. Because you, I wanted to see more of the dynamic between the two of them. I love the bickering. I love just the concept of like her obsession going to the point where she be- physically becomes a doll is, is a fun move cinematically yeah Um, there's definitely that shift where it's no longer about the good guys pun intended i guess (laughs) yeah everybody becomes disposable after that point in the franchise which makes it harder to enjoy the films from like a good filmmaking standpoint yeah 
but goddamn are they fun because of the dynamic between them because of the like no holds barred we know that they'll do anything for each other more so tiffany for chucky rather than chucky for tiffany chucky wouldn't do shit until until he starts she humbles him a little bit which is interesting but like going in this with the intent of trying to fix him is never never the answer (laughs) but yeah like you said fun fun characters bad couple so far they've made it through every film (laughs) yeah i mean because they're they're entertaining to watch but i think there's also something to be said about the villainous couple being the one that makes it through that toxicity and obsession being something that carries these couples forward because in the slasher genre it's almost always like you mentioned doza an attempt to destroy the couple an attempt to draw out the true toxicity that's brewing between them so to have a horror couple like that be the complete antithesis of that just showcases what the genre is trying to bring to light and what it brings out in the protagonist couples I mean, I we guess see you a could ton- say the yeah. same for like natural born killers. It's basically the same thing, like really bad relationship, but that relationship and love, I guess, love for each other is what helps them survive a lot throughout the whole film. Like they get bitten by snakes, they get shot, and they're still like, eh, and they got thrown in jail, and they still manage to break out together because they're just determined to be together. It's not romantic. It's very Bonnie and Clyde. Who, yeah, I was just gonna say that minus the survival. Yeah, although Bonnie and Clyde were a couple of bumbling idiots, um, but like they they were so in love with each other, it's it's absurd. That's the that's the kind of connection I, I really do appreciate. I just I, I probably shouldn't be talking about that. They were real people, and they were kind of they were murderers and everything. But boy, did they love each other. I don't understand how people who are killers can have enough empathy and compassion to actually love another human being if they're capable of randomly killing people without any feeling towards that from my understanding there uh, a lot of it was superficial to a degree but uh they were more in love with the the idea of what they were doing as being taboo and that kind of pushed them even further together it's also a love that's bred out of again obsession but it's an obsession with desperation where the two of them were so desperate to change their circumstances and they found that in each other and they pushed each other to change their circumstances but they picked the absolute worst way to do it so they were you know in love with each other in love with the idea of what they were doing but they were also in love with the idea of changing their status together by any means necessary it would be a lot better if they could have done nicer things with their love but you know whatever because i was finding it hard to think of like couples i was also thinking of like really good partnerships that kind of borderline on love because I was thinking of uh, the right one in. Oh, yeah, I absolutely, that's on my list. I mean, it's not that they're like a couple, they're just like they're kids, but it's obvious that they have this mutual love and respect for each other. Well, Oscar is a kid. Well, yeah, okay. But also, I just want to, because there's a little conflict there. Let the Right One In is one of the greatest vampire films of all time. It touches on a lot of the characteristics and tropes of the vampire genre without saying them and without bringing them to light. So it can also be inferred that from almost the time that they meet, she's breeding Oscar to be her servant. So there's that hypnotic element. How much of it is actually selfless? How much of it is actually out of love? And how much of it is out of servitude? I, I think he genuinely loves her. Yeah. A, I, a lot of- I've never seen it as like hit her like hypnotizing him into... Because like he questions what she's doing. He's just like I think she incredibly him loyal to her. The final like sequence is what throws her. me. In, in, what, in what way? I forget the exact moment, but I remember sitting there and watching the train sequence unfold and Oscar does something or says something in her defense that feels like a hypnotic answer. I I didn't read that read it that way at all. I I genuinely feel like it's from a good place in his heart where he has genuine feelings for her and you see so so little of Ellie in in 
like a, in a romantic sense that I, I genuinely think like there's a degree where they do. She does consider him a friend, but a lot of it is like, oh, this is also a means for my life to change. Right. I think he's but that's so also the same for, for him. Friends that he's just he's just acting out of desperation, really, to keep his only friend. So then we're also kind of falling back into the Bonnie and Clyde obsession breeds desperation. No, but they, they loved each other. They, they were a couple. <laughs> and Oscar and Ellie are, at the end of the day, I think, a good friend. Because she's protective of him. She could at any point have just been like, when she when she's outside and she protects him. Like, she could have dipped. She could have let him get his ass kicked. But she does come to his defense because she genuinely cares about him. But it's it's also almost, in a sense, farming. Because when you think of her last servant... But then, like, why not just, like, find somebody else and just use her vampire magic to be like, whoa, 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 you care about me. Because then the movie wouldn't happen. See, I, that's that's what I'm saying. Like, it, <laughs> oh, I think, I think them, they're adorable, friends. I, I, I do think they're adorable. I do love them. It is a fantastic movie. I think Let the Right One In is too smart for them to not be at least have having genuine compassion for one another. I don't doubt that there's something genuine that starts there. But I do think that it evolves into, because they are so smart in the way they did it, that hypnotic element where they've touched on so many vampire elements and lore pieces without saying them, that's just one more. It's such a smart movie, then you have to watch it like so many times just to pick up things that you didn't pick up before, and it gets better every time you watch it. So I might give it another watch just with like your theory in mind. But I like to believe that it's just... I mean, if she does manipulate him into staying with her towards the end, then I think that's probably because she likes him so much and she doesn't want to lose him. I'd like to think it comes from an element of that, not like, hey, he'd be handy. Yeah, Anthony, if you've ruined this movie for me, I will come (laughs) for you. (laughs) Now, Let the Right One In does bring up another important element of these horror couples. What? What are you going to ruin now? I'm not going to ruin anything. (laughs) I'm going to enlighten you. You're making my soul hurt. (laughs) It might also be the energy drink. But Let the Right One In also blatantly removes sexuality. Literally. Yeah. So removing that element adds to more of that pure idea of their dynamic together. Because we know that it can never progress into that. We're never going to expect that. They're never going to fall into the standard horror couple trope of sex is death. So to have that removed adds to that pure element and gives us that idea that like, you know, this could be something good for the first time in a while in the genre. Because most of these couples, when it comes to true romantic interest and true sexual interest, that's where things start to fall apart. That's where the toxicity starts coming out. That's where the fights arise. It's always it's why the genre is so big on the coming of age stories, because at the end of the day, let the right one in is also a coming of age story. So it's coming into discovering yourself, discovering your sexuality, discovering how you behave with another person and whether or not that becomes a level of compatibility, dependability or like we said before, pure obsession. OK, I see where you're coming from. I do. I think I'm just, I think I'm still like residually mad <laughs> that like. Everything Anthony is saying, I'm, like, trying to take with a grain of salt. But, like, no, I, I I do agree. It's just a theory. I think it's a good theory, but it's a theory. No, it's it's respectable. Fucking whatever. I just, I feel different now. And I don't, I consider myself pretty liberal as a person and open to ideas. But, like. I mean, okay. Um, playing on the vampire genre again. It's like people who say that Mina and Dracula truly loved each other. And that the well... Oceans of Timeline actually means something. And it's not just Dracula coming on back and like this girl looks like somebody i used to love yeah that, that's all it is in my eyes like i just think it's him pining for someone he's lost which happens to like nina yeah, he's like, he's like, jonathan a tie like he should have just like backed off for real <laughs> <laughs> it's just in a him impeding on a couple in a more romantic way than in a murderous way which is the opposite of how a lot of the genre goes his presence breeds it's from obsession it's that level of toxicity 
where he's introducing the toxicity into an otherwise good relationship and tempting it and twisting it. But because of that vampiric power and that hypnosis, there does come that point where we have to question Mina. But is it right to question Mina or is it just because she's under his power? Because otherwise she doesn't waver from Jonathan. It's only when she's like under Dracula's spell that she's all like unfaithful, I guess. (laughs) That doesn't see, that's a very... Even in the book, I feel like that's a really big split between personalities for her. Like You can tell how different she's acting when she's under his spell than when she's introduced. Yeah, she's she's zonked at that point. I don't think it's by her own volition that she is straying from Jonathan. You guys want to make a lateral move to werewolves from there? Uh, The American werewolf in London? It's the opposite of uh <laughs> monster using monster abilities to to sink their claws into somebody and where it's david protecting his girlfriend alex from him as a monster and i i like their relationship because you get to watch it sort of grow pseudo organically where he's an american who falls in love with an english nurse totally unrelatable after <laughs> that's what i say every time that anthony comes to visit i'm like American werewolf in London. see it's cute but after getting mauled by the werewolf and having his, his friend get actually killed he wakes up in the hospital and uh, alex who has been taking care of him is there having her be one of the first people he interacts with and one of the now the only people that he knows uh familiarly in london is nice and then their relationship grows and they move in together and he starts to experience this change and when he's becoming a werewolf his goal is no longer because the the ghosts are urging him to kill himself and it's like you know end end the werewolf curse so he's conflicted about that and his goal is skewed a little bit because he wants to spend time with Alex, but now he has to expend all his energy trying to protect her from himself and what he's become. And that I think is, although not very responsible of him, very romantic. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something to be said about that being a, a toxic and selfish trait. It's self-preservation over the greater good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's his love for her being based purely out of what he wants and what he gets from her and not about what they have and how it evolves. Because while they do have a pretty solid relationship that blossoms throughout the film, we don't learn a whole lot after the hospital about Alex. We don't get much of a sense of how she feels for him well she the, i guess the whole... we do in the subway sequence i think well, that's yeah, very telling i mean that's the king kong moment and, and at the... the end after the the final confrontation where he gets killed and turns to a human and he's still after seeing him like that and experiencing this with him she she she's distraught that care is is still there and part of me will always love like a, a monster human sort of relationship where it's like, you know, like this cannot be, this should not be, but it we want it to be. And that's, it, it's cute to me in a way. And so it, Beauty and the Beast is your favorite Disney movie is what you're trying to tell. I just think the Beast is kind of sexy. And I don't, I don't know. I like the clock. <laughs> and I like the clock. <laughs> No, but like I, I, I like that uh, as a as a trope. I think it's interesting. I do like that because it takes the opposite end of the spectrum of the Dracula idea and the Bonnie and Clyde idea. Exactly, where it's the hope is always that beauty kills the beast. The idea that this person can bring this beast into civility, bring them into their humanity, and this loving relationship can become something it is the idea behind king kong minus the you know romantic relationship but it's (laughs) minus the gorilla (laughs) but it's the idea of bringing civility to that primal urge oh yeah and honestly we can take that to a whole nother level and start talking about hellraiser because when you compare i'm so gonna draw a blank on names here hang on one sec larry and julia's relationship to julia and frank's relationship oh man frank is the beast yeah but 
Okay. <laughs> Julia sucks out of free will, which is taking that Dracula concept where Frank has tempted her into doing so. She's done it accordingly. She's done it of her own free will. And Frank is the beast. He's this garbage monster that really does become <laughs> a monster in the end. It's like but... a Jekyll Hyde thing where Frank is like the Mr. Hyde to the antithesis weenie character of... You leave Dr. Henry Jekyll alone. Oh my god. He... Also, Jekyll and, drawing a blank on the name here... The... Hyde. No, the female <laughs> protagonist of Jekyll and Hyde. Her and Hyde never share a romantic interest. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I I know I know you're not dumb, but for that one waning moment, I was like, maybe Anthony has been a fool this whole time. <laughs> I'm but, sorry. Um, throughout all of Jekyll and Hyde, Hyde is pure beast. Hyde is pure aggression. Hyde is no, he's not. He's 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 negative. He's all the bad things that a person can be. So he's he's cunning, manipulative. He's not really in the book's depiction of he's, him. He super is. He's not necessarily a monster. He's negative character traits. Okay. He's everything um, that like that. I remember Jekyll... him being more monstrous. Well, okay. So the first couple of film depictions are more monstrous than human. The book gives him more humanity, but he's still monstrous. To put that uh cunning element to him uh draws a little bit more from something like dorian gray than jekyll and hyde and i feel like that didn't happen until we got those blendings of film and genre and more recent adaptations of jekyll and hyde which now that i think about it i don't think there's ever really been a good one there never will be except for the extraordinary gentleman what oh also the musical is incredible yes but let's um, not talk about that. I do love League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I was going to bring up Mina again just because she's amazing. Because she eventually goes on to take over the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, but that's a story for another day. That's a story for another podcast. Let's get back <laughs> to what the fuck we were talking about. Well, let's talk about Hellraiser. They're just not good relationships. Yeah, like, where, where are you going? It's two different toxic relationships involving the same woman and a magic box it makes frank shitty he was already shitty well that's why like i love pinhead and i love the cenobites for that reason they are the morality in horror as brutal as their tactics are they showcase that sex is death idea between julia and frank and everything that they do in hellraiser but it's only the moral characters who are able to step up and larry is pretty much okay because of his moral standing does he not get killed doesn't she kill him yeah julia kills him yeah to try and get but not the cenobites the cenobites are the morality oh i'm sorry i I misunderstood what you were saying when you said that he was okay i thought you meant that like he was fine in the end no (laughs) well larry I was like, I'm pretty sure he gets his head bashed. <laughs> okay, I get, I get it now. The only other like good couple, I mean, obviously there's the main one, but then apart from that, the, the only one, one I can think of that like came to mind straight away when mm. I was like, nice horror couples, Seymour and Audrey. No. Um, no. In the end, they're great. She she has a horrible relationship around their relationship when they finally get together towards the end and he's like always been looking out for her she's always been looking out for him even though like neither of them thought the other one was interested and then when they get together at the end they're all great i guess i just i've always felt like their relationship is very superficial a hundred percent i mean they didn't know that each other liked the other one and audrey was like in the shitty relationship dreaming that she could be with seymour literally kills orin for her and he was, like, actually hurting her. Like, if you saw someone beating up the person you loved, would you not think that that was kind of grounds? And you've got a plant that's, like, completely on your ass about, like, killing people for it. <laughs> then, like, wouldn't that be your go-to? But then he's still capable of killing another human being. Which, oh, yeah. as you said before... Not making a habit out of it. <laughs> I think that was a justified kill. 
That's different than going around killing people going, aren't we cool? What do we want to determine as a habit? Because the body count in Little Shop is like four intentionally, and then counting the bad ending is the world. More more than one to get the same result, I think, is forming that habit. Okay, yeah, but like, after all the plant business is done with, and they realize they like each other, and then they actually become a couple, then it's adorable. I think Seymour is the quintessential nice guy. Yeah. He feels that he's deserving of this. And yes, his actions are good. And he takes out Oren, which is the bad guy. Um, the plant's the bad guy. Oren is a bad no, guy. No, the plant is a deus ex machina. Like, he didn't need to keep feeding it blood after he figured out that it fed on blood. He didn't need to keep making it bigger. Like, I know he did it because he needed the money, but like... Yeah, he didn't need to keep feeding it. Once he realized that, like, he was going to have to actually feed it, like, people and kill people, then, like, he should have been like, hey, wait a minute. Audrey 2 is a voice of repressed energy. It's literally the same as Hyde. So are we doing the relationship between Seymour and the plant or Seymour and Audrey? Seymour and Audrey. Seymour that's is what I want to talk a nice about. guy who feels he's deserving of this relationship, but when it comes down to it, for all the nice little things he does for Audrey... They don't really know a whole lot about each other. It's a face value relationship. They've known each other for years. But what do they know about each other? That she's pretty and he works at the plant store. She has a whole song. They're not there uh, for their years of friendship for him. <laughs> so. Oh, somewhere that's green. Yeah. Yeah. She's singing about how she wants uh, a change in her life. She wants life to be more simple. She wants to break away from the complicated and abusive relationship that she has with her current boyfriend, Oren. And she sees Seymour as sort of like a safe pick beyond that. But her whole song, Somewhere That's Green, is about her being free and wanting a simple, uncomplicated life. And for her, like that is Seymour. I don't think that that's love. I think that that is it's just... projection. Exactly. She's projecting everything she wants into the idea of Seymour because he's he's safe and he's just like a blank slate where she can just take her. But it doesn't. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter because they both get eaten by a plant. Yeah, everybody gets eaten by a plant. I'm in there now. Wait, here, here's a good one. Here's a good one. Remember, remember the Quiet Place? Yeah. What about what about Evelyn and Lee? They're great. They're they're a wonderful couple and wonderful parents. Except for that one kid. Oh wait. <laughs> they're awful parents. <laughs> oh man. Wait, they're they're good to those two kids that they have left <laughs> after the first one. It is a, a husband and wife pushed to the absolute brink of survival where they've created a a comfortable world for their two remaining children <laughs> where they they can exist almost sort of happily in a, a post-apocalyptic world where aliens have come and taken over and happily and with a sense of normalcy and an ability to continue to care for each other in the romantic sense that they had before everything went to shit right like they still care like when i talk about with Seymour and Audrey, how they don't really show that they know a whole lot about each other. With Evelyn and Lee, they have the all these little things that with no words, they're these little things like, here's this thing that you loved before the apocalypse. I went out of my way to make this happen for you. Here's this thing that we can do. The iPod dance thing, oh super cute. Oh my god. That is like situationally aside goals. Like I, I want that love. And that sense of normalcy is is so nice that they're able to to push and sort of ge- create this life despite their circumstances. And the fact that it feels real, seeing that on screen made me even more empathetic to, to their circumstances because of how real they felt. Yeah, they're very real three-dimensional characters that showcase all these different ways that throughout the whole film they put each other and they put their kids first everything in that film is about selflessness i can't think of a single selfish action that's two episodes in a row we talked about a quiet place oh yeah look at that uh you also mentioned before tree and skrunk i think it's his name (laughs) tree and carter they're another one where uh, and Anna, I can't wait for you to see Happy Death Day 
yeah, it's come on to Netflix recently, so I will watch it. Okay. Um, I just generally I don't like the whole like Groundhog Day style of film because I get so into a film I get so frustrated with the people having to repeat things so I get frustrated for the character you're gonna like it because they get nitpicky about how they repeat things and what needs to be repeated there's always like it's good they did a great job and I sit there and I'm like well there could be a flaw here I kept trying to find flaws and they nailed it what I love about Tree and Carter's relationship is they're forced to repeat the same single day over and over again. And as many times as they do it, we watch their relationship go through the full cycle of a relationship. They they meet each other. They start to get to know each other. They start to fall for each other a little bit. They go through a little bit of turmoil. And by Happy Death Day 2, they're both full, well-rounded people in a very strong couple she goes through a huge character change over the course of the movie where she's a a very stereotypical um sorority girl sorority girl thank you and then by happy death day too she becomes a nerd i feel like that it's one of those things where it's like society had sort of shoehorned uh shoehorned her into this way that she is quote-unquote supposed to be and through her experience with this <laughs> uh, dying every day for, I don't know, however many days uh, and meeting this guy, it enabled her to, to change and become a person like that she wants to be like from her own choosing and them together as a couple. It's it's very nice. I watch I like watching couples that have similar passions just kind of like exist in their own space. It's inspiring in a way. I, I was just reminded of. The couple Allison in Tucker and Dale. There, by the end of Tucker and Dale versus Evil. It's very similar. Yeah, it's a similar growth pattern, and they're a great couple by the end of it. I may be projecting onto Dale a little bit, but like <laughs> I love them together. It's it's very wholesome. And I he's not like that sort of like good guy trope. He's like genuinely just like a good person. That's a good point, because Dale is, a good is guy. the opposite of Seymour in the sense that he is a genuinely good guy. Everything that he goes through is entirely on accident, and he's constantly trying to prove that that's not the person he is to this girl that he just met, and he takes his time meeting and getting to know over the course of board games, and, I mean, what appears to be a Stockholm Syndrome relationship. Yeah, but I, I still don't think it's a Stockholm relationship. No, 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 no it we're saying it's not as a Stockholm relationship. Okay. It appears that way to Allison at one point in the film to her friends. They question whether or not, you know, her and is Dale or Tucker. It's Dale, right? I think it's Dale because it... yeah, it's Dale and Allison. All right. Because having the romantic lead be named Tucker, I don't like it. <laughs> Sorry to all the Tuckers out there. Fuck them. But yeah, I thought. <laughs> oh, no, Tucker we lost and... one subscriber. <laughs> Sorry, Tucker. Tucker and Dale are a good follow-up to Tree and Carter. That's all. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Episode's over. Give me, give me a bad one. Some, it, some bad couples make for good cinema. Exactly. And that's why this has become such a working trope. Because we like to see the conflict. We like to see the final girl. We like to see her overcome the toxicity of usually the male counterpart. Also, now that we talked about both Hellraiser and White Zombie... I realize they're the same film. In in what way? Yeah, um, in what way? In White Zombie, uh, Charles and Madeline mm-hmm. are at the castle to be married, and Neil steps up as the good guy. So there's that love triangle, oh. and the voodoo zombies are the equivalent of the puzzle box, and Madeline becomes possessed or tranced, and then you have. Frank and Julia and Larry and the puzzle box. The thing is, like, in White Zombie, they're a much better relationship. Well, because I guess they couldn't get that abusive on screen in the 30s. That is interesting, because both Hellraiser and White Zombie are two of my bedtime movies. Um, What the fuck? (laughs) That's okay. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is my rainy day comfort movie. What is wrong with you guys? 
Dexter's Chainsaw is like literally it's a rainy day and you're under a blanket and you like want like some sort of comfort movie. So you... And a plate of chicken wings. Ooh. Yeah. I crave barbecue when watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It has done the opposite of its intended effect. Yeah, that is. We we are very drastically different people. Because <laughs> you're vegan and I'll eat chicken wings and watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just your choice of go to sleep movies are very loud and intense. No, because like black and white movies are usually my go-to's for bedtime movies anyway, because I just find them comforting. But like I don't know, Hellraiser is is also a comfort film because it's like from when I was a kid. Anything either from like the thirties to fifties or the eighties or seventies or sixties, anywhere between the f- any era of film, <laughs> the nineteen twenties to the nineteen eighties is is a comfort wow. film. Wow, what a gap! <laughs> Holy shit! And then the nineties oh wasn't God. that comforting. No, uh, there's. Uh, we always have this problem when we get to the nineties of anything. Well, and then the solution is I talk about Scream for a little exactly, bit. Exactly, so we can talk about Billy and, and Sydney. Let's back um, up. <laughs> one of one of the worst couples in horror. They're in high school when this happens, right? Yeah, the 90s and 2000s, I guess all film was a bad time to put people in high school because they're all 30. Billy being, like, even when he's not under the mask, kind of an asshole. He he pressures Sydney into sex. He's just, like, he's weird, manipulative. He's blackmailing her dad and, over the course of the movie, gaslighting her the whole time, thinking that, like, Oh, you know, like I'm I'm the one that'll keep you safe. Like I'm stick with me and things will be okay. But he kills her fucking mom and he's murdering all of her friends. And so Sydney is like I will say every time we get to the 90s and we're talking about anything, just I love that she is like the the perfect protagonist against his corrupt antagonist and they're almost uh, a sort of perfect match in that respect where they're good they're good nemeses for one another they're good foils is i guess the the better term but bad bad couple great characters i I love to watch their interactions and the the first scream is i think untouched over the course of that franchise when it comes to that first big reveal of billy and i think spud is his name who's matthew lillard <laughs> I don't remember um, being the killers, but biggity bad couple in a similar vein in that not necessarily a gaslight, but in us, Adelaide and Gabe, Adelaide always knows what's up. Adelaide knows the history of all this. And as everything's happening, Adelaide knows why. So like while she's not trying to necessarily goad anybody into thinking that like, she's innocent and good like she does become the protagonist through it she's kind of pretending that she's good the whole way through well right, she, right. she is but good. like she is the good character but she's so also that, like, keeping everything from her husband which is like fucked up which is why sydney and billy made me think of that because it's the idea of the gaslight and not giving the whole truth but still like they're the opposite of that couple where it's for the greater good yeah, it comes from a good place yeah She's not trying to do it maliciously. She's just trying to have a normal life and her past comes back to haunt her. And or now she's she got to defend her. trying to hide that she's secretly born evil and she took a poor innocent person's place. Well, then that becomes nature versus nurture and- because she she is the good character. Yeah, but the only reason she doesn't want them to go back there isn't for like the protection of her family. It's so that she doesn't get caught out, in my opinion. I don't know, because I think, like, the way that she protects her kids, like, those are her kids, there's no denying yeah. that. And, like, Gabe is her husband. They met well after the events of the swap. Yeah, they chose each other. And Yeah, they chose each other, they fell in love, and they are a great couple. They're through and through protecting each other, protecting their family, all while essentially living with this secret, living with this horror show haunting that is, like, on par with the big reveal of Scream. Yeah, like, there, she carries this darkness with her. I don't think that she's, like, waiting for a moment to flip. I think she's trying to live her life knowing, like, I, I am the one that got out. Like, I, you know, I shouldn't be taking this for granted. But, like, 
you know, I know that those people are still out there. She has that guilt. I don't think that she is a bad person. I don't think that she's evil. As a couple, yeah, they do obviously care about each other. And obviously you can see, like, the fear in her when they're after her family. Absolutely. So I guess what we're trying to say is be sure to watch our Us episode. Watch, listen to, with your earballs. Just yeah. for one second, want to talk about Steve and Diane from Poltergeist. I think they're a great couple because they are just, they're normal. You feel like you know them in, in a way where they're almost like typical American family, which I think makes for a, a great cinematic couple where it's like, they're so normal, they're not even remarkable. I didn't even remember them until you mentioned it. I, I think they're... They have like little romantic moments like where it's yeah. like, they're still obviously like in love with each other, but then... I don't. I think the character building is so strong in that movie that you do feel like you know the characters from so. the get go. They're. I think they're remarkable just as much as any of us is remarkable. Where they are their own people, and we only see what the movie shows us of them. But it's like they have a history together. They have this life together, and we only see the struggle that they go on. But we also see them. We like, do get those nice moments, though, yeah, and like, that's what's important, right? You get like the playful ribbing, and like when <laughs> there's moments where they're like, where Steve is like reading in bed, and it's just like I want that kind of love. I want to just like, aside from the poltergeist experience <laughs> and the. You're friends with me. You're going to get that. Oh, my God. But I like them. I am watching Poltergeist. That That's one of the selling points for me where it just like this just feels like a family. That's like, if, oh, it almost like makes you want to put yourself in their perspective. Like, oh, my God, like this could happen to me, which which makes them that that much more real and that much more empathetic as characters. I mean, that makes for any good cinema you want characters you can relate to you want characters who feel real so the more real a couple feels the more you're going to be able to say like yeah that's that's a good couple and the struggles they go through yeah those are real those are things that people experience those are things i've experienced so to see them come out on the other side of a haunting or a slasher film or whatever it shows a strength in a couple we don't care about couples that don't make it through because they're two-dimensional or couples that do make it through because they're two-dimensional which brings me to two of the worst cinematic couples that we've ever had because they're two-dimensional at best maybe one-dimensional and that is danny and christian of midsummer and red and mandy of mandy there's nothing between them oh here we go Christian is an asshole from the beginning to the end. Danny has like the most minor growth arc that just ends up in a revenge story. Red and Mandy, I couldn't tell you shit about what they liked apart from each other. Because there was no character building in that film. You literally cannot feel anything for them as a couple because you saw them for like four or five seconds. Saw no no chemistry between them. The acting was terrible. The story was written badly. There is nothing that you can latch on to as, as a couple. Like, what the fuck is he avenging for that whole film? You don't know because you don't actually know that they love each other apart from him getting angry. I mean, we get that he's avenging a human life and he's avenging the woman he loves. But from an audience standpoint, no we don't understand. Yeah, I can't emote with Mandy's death because I don't know who Mandy is. I don't know anything about her and Red. I know they have a nice moment in bed where they talk about space for a second. Do they talk? I don't even remember. Yeah, it's very gentle. And she says, I know that constellation. Oh, right. And he says, that's space. The, uh, the worst thing about Mandy is, apart from like the whole film just being tragically off, you get no character building. It was literally, if, when Mandy dies, you don't feel anything. How can you? Because they haven't even, like, you haven't got to know her. It's the Mary Sue complex, or in this case, the Mandy Sue complex, <laughs> where... Hollywood and writers they'll give you a blank character because you can project your own ideas and feelings onto them wait but I didn't do that no which means that it was less effective than like the Hunger Games and Twilight I would rather watch them on repeat than ever watch a single second of Mandy ever again but anyway yeah like Danny in Midsummer, like you just feel terrible for because she's she's abused through the whole film traumatized like she has 
like bad PTSD and for good reason. Her boyfriend is just a dick and is just like, oh, she's bumming me out because like her family died and all this. And like, I don't want to take care of her, but I suppose I have to now that her family's died. And he's, yeah, he's just a dick. So he, he deserves what's coming. But I, yeah, there's no like love between them. They're not really a couple. And again, there wasn't a lot of character building in Midsummer. Yeah, like, I didn't feel anything, and like Anna, like you were saying, listen to our Midsummer episode. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I have one little point I'd like to posit. Did Pella kill her sister? I don't know. Maybe we would know if we watched the additional two hours of the director's cut. I'm not about to sit there. I did. That. He killed her sister. Great! Wait, didn't her sister, didn't her sister kill herself? Nope. It's meant to look that way. Yeah, he said oh, it up. Oh, I didn't know that. The I think we I still mentioned don't that. Care, which is sad. But... He picked them all out. It's 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 subtle, but it's there. He uh, a thousand percent was pulling the strings the whole time. Which fucking whatever. I I don't feel any different. But it just goes to show how far a little bit of good character development goes. And it seems like the better developed characters are the ones that end up making it through as a couple in the end. Because at the end of the day, the whole sex kills and communication is important element of the slasher genre is the make or break point. It's what defines these mostly two-dimensional characters. They don't communicate well with each other. We don't know enough about them, so we don't get attached to them. We get more attached to the killers, which is why there are so many sequels. The killer is the more important, more interesting character. And the killer is that moral idea of the Cenobites maintain your integrity or be punished jason having sex will lead you to death and it just it carries on and that's why it's become such a trope evil dead is one of my favorite films and film franchises what are you about to do to us ash and linda oh okay so like i don't know if that's a great relationship it's not because we know so much about ash and we know nothing about Linda. We which know is why that they were she's so there. Evil. Uh, sorry, which is evil. why it was so easy for them to give us all totally different Linda in the opening of Evil Dead 2. Well, they ran out of Linda money. <laughs> Had to get a discount, Linda. <laughs> so I want to hear, Anna, what you have to say about why you don't think the monsters are a great couple. Okay, so the monsters are a great couple, but I don't think that they're... A perfect couple. One. Well, no, no couple is a perfect couple. I feel like that they... Wait, there is one perfect couple. Ooh, all right. It, it, it's going to be obvious, guys. Come on. It better be. It's us. Oh. With Lillian, Lily nags the hell out of Herman, and it actually bothers me a little bit. Because, like, she's constantly telling him he's wrong, and, like, he's kind of bumbly, and, like... He's a goof. Like, that's his character, and she's trying to write him. But, yeah, I don't like that she tries to write him so much. But she's the moral integrity. No, she she's just prevents him from making foolish mistakes. I don't think so. And sometimes she's just nagging him, and it, I don't know. There's something that triggers in my brain when I hear a woman needlessly nagging a guy that makes me just think that they're controlling. It was like the sixties, was like early seventies when the monsters was on. Maybe that was just the thing then, but. Also, there is this one episode of the monsters where they both go to work, but they don't tell the other one that they're going to work at this, like, I think it's like a mining place or something. And so they have to wear, like, these masks while they're working. And while they're wearing the masks at work and not knowing that the other one is the other one, they, like, start flirting with each other. And then they're, like, feeling guilty because they're, like, oh, we're flirting with someone that's not, like, a husband or a wife and then they start bringing in like lunches for each other and they start like hanging out and like spending more time together and like developing a crush on each other but like thinking it's a completely different person and coming home feeling like really bad about it and yeah i get it's meant to be sweet when it's eventually revealed that like oh we had a crush on each other i get that that's meant to be sweet but it's also not because <laughs> they <laughs> went on developing a relationship thinking that it wasn't their husband or wife if we're looking at the monsters as a whole as if we were looking at a film or a series of films then is that not the moment of weakness where they learn that 
communication is what's going to save their relationship. Communication is what's going to bring them on the other side of this horror story. Because while it's, I guess, more of an emotional cheat than a physical cheat, they don't they don't cross that boundary. They don't. But that is a boundary. Like emotional cheating right. is just as bad as physical cheating. But the point is that if they were a good couple, they would have communicated with each other that they were going to do this. They would have communicated with each other as soon as they started to spark feelings for someone else and gone, look, I messed up, and then, like, discuss it. They wouldn't have just then carried on. And then the only reason they reveal themselves is because they basically, like, want to make out. That whole episode is also, like, one part gift of the Magi. Like, they are in this situation because they're going through a hard time. So they pick up this extra work and they're both doing this to make ends meet and to make up for what they're currently lacking in their relationship, which is taking another point of lacking because they don't have the time to communicate the way that they used to. So then being in this work environment together gives them this anonymous moment to communicate with each other again and reinstate that spark. So yeah, it's shady because they don't realize that it's each other. But that's that hardship where they realize, like, I've got it good. Going any further than this would never have been an option, would never have been the right move. That's something that I feel like everybody could uh, learn from. You know, communication is key in all things. And I'm such a bad communicator (laughs) to every single person that I care about. Not that I would, like, go and cheat on my wife with my wife, but... Having that be the monsters ran for 70 episodes, having that be one moment of faltering, like they do get at ends with each other, but it's, it's a sitcom. Like people will, they have, there has to be conflict there. Otherwise you're not watching anything. But I, I, I thought they're a good couple aside from this one moment of faltering, which just does happen to come out sweet. Yeah. I still just think the intention behind it is bad, but it like it ruined my faith in them as a couple when I first like watched that episode. I got really upset. So so Anna, what well, what is your your perfect couple then? Well, Tisha and Gomez. I just think that the Adams and the Monsters are on par with each other. They are absolutely aspirational, goal worthy couples. If they didn't go through hardships, they would be entirely unattainable. They would be entirely unrelatable. Dale and Allison didn't go through the entire ordeal of the film. We wouldn't be able to sit here and call them a great horror couple. They go through something together. It brings them together. It makes them stronger and it makes them better. Like my number one couple. Who is? Adam and Barbara from Beetlejuice. Because they're just a couple of nerds that are trying their best even in death. It is really cute that they just want to spend like their holiday at home like decorating and like... Yeah. They want to spend their afterlife at home decorating. In their own house. With their adopted daughter, Lydia. (laughs) They're my honorable mention. And my dishonorable mention is Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I don't know if you can really count them as a couple. Because then there's a lot of guys out there that could say that they've tried it with a girl and then she's turned around and screamed. (laughs) I don't think that constitutes as them being a couple. Do you have a dishonorable mention? Either of you? I did my dishonorable mention. I was just, I didn't have much to say about that i just wanted to, to shoehorn it in but like yeah that's the only people that i had so anyone else you guys i'm out of people i had one other point just talking about our first horror crushes oh no <laughs> is edward scissorhands a horror film i want to say yeah it's got dark elements yeah i mean i i mentioned beetlejuice i i guess i'll i'll throw him in the catch-all that tim burton is spooky enough so I have had a crush on Winona Ryder my entire life. Because <laughs> she's been in every movie that I love. But like having her be Mina in Dracula, having her be in Beetlejuice in Edward Scissorhands, uh, and now in Stranger Things. It's just like I had so many opportunities growing up to fall in love with Winona Ryder. And every single time I saw her, it just like happened again. And I'm going to marry her one day. I hope she's listening. Anna? Johnny Depp, which is kind of obvious, and um, Nightmare on Elm Street, because it's Johnny Depp. That's in a crop top. Um, in a crop top. <laughs> and I have a Johnny Depp crop top, which is really weird. Um, <laughs> or it was Michael from Lost Boys. They weren't like my two like 
like I had to think about it. Like my two, I have two like real like childhood crushes from when I was a kid, and like they went in horror, so I had to really think about my horror crush for a second. <laughs> what about Rob Zombie? I, 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 Did you I never break up with him. Yeah, I broke up with Rob Zombie. We've spoken about this. <laughs> no, he's just he's just like a guy I was seeing. He wasn't my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody now is gonna frantically Google whether or not you dated Rob Zombie. <laughs> I think everyone knows that's true. But yes, I did write him a breakup letter and actually mail it to him. Um, and just for safe measure, I copied the same thing into an email and sent it to his agent. Wait, I didn't know that. <laughs> you're my favorite, Anna. You're my horror crush now. Hey, what? Oh. But my two oh, childhood no. crushes with David Bowie is the Goblin King and a tray never ending story. And they're both kinda like sorry. For a second I forgot that Atreyu was the boy and not the wish dragon. My brain just put it all together. Falcor was my first kiss. Mothman was my first kiss. I wish I was you. <laughs> Anthony doesn't have one because he knows to keep his mouth shut. No, I don't oh. have one for a, a very different reason. Oh. So the year is 2004. <laughs> oh, we're going on a little journey, okay. I'm 11 or 12 years old. I'm, I'm on the cusp of my, my sexual awakening. I had a very significant dream at this age. The Grudge had just come out. Okay. And I had oh, gone wait, to see... I definitely did. I don't know this. I had gone to see The Grudge with one of my best friends, and I stayed over at his house that night, and I went to bed, and I had this very very vivid dream that the girl from the grudge you know the one with the no bottom jaw and her tongue hanging out came up from the floor in the room we were in like it felt like it was happening and so my first instinct was to grab her and make out with her and so her tongue and my tongue and now that's why i don't have a horror crush because that happened in 2004 I hope I've made you all significantly uncomfortable. Is that why you always stick your tongue out in photos? Oh my gosh, she worked her way into your brainstem with that tongue. <laughs> hey, Anna, what the Fetish fuck? That is jawless woman. It's not. It 100% isn't. This traumatized me on the cusp of my manhood. I'm going to take my jaw up now. No. Oh, there it goes. Hey, yeah, that was fucking weird. <laughs> I just felt like the Valentine's episode was the appropriate episode to lay that on everyone. But I was like, Winona Ryder, and I went, Johnny Depp, and you went, the tongue. <laughs> Holy shit, dude. Give us the fear of the day, please. <laughs> the fear of the day is anuptophobia. It's the fear of marriage. Wait, what was your guess? I didn't guess yet. Yes, yes you did. Uh, no, you just went, what did you say? He said the fear of marriage. Is that it? It it sounds like it. Anupt, nupt, nuptials. Yeah, like anupt sunamoon so from the mummy. <laughs> <laughs> you're both saying that it's fear of marriage. Anuptophobia is the fear of staying single. Oh, anupt. Anupt, a n u p t. Oh. So you're all on with like the idea. So it's of the fear of nuptials. not getting married. Yeah. That was, that was good. A little curveball. It hit a weird place in my heart just now. <laughs> I think we're all in a weird place after this episode. Two out of three of us have recommendations. Spoiler alert, it's you guys. Do you what? not have one? Do you think? I'll come up with one. We've kind of mentioned my recommendation in past episodes in, like, passing, but um, not for the reason of horror couples. So my recommendation is Cargo, 2017. But the, the couple Andy and Kay in that film going through one of the most realistic portrayals of a zombie apocalypse, I think, in that movie, the way that they handle it as a couple and the care that they have for each other throughout that whole thing, and their newborn baby as well. Like, having a newborn baby in the apocalypse, like, that sucks. That always stresses me out. Yeah. It didn't feel like... Even though it was a really tense situation, a really dramatic situation, their like relationship wasn't tense or dramatic. Their relationship was grounded and comforting each other while still being like fearful and very cautious for the other one. Like it just felt like a very realistic couple. 
who just deeply cared for each other and just wanted to get through this together. So I think, like, even though it's, like, a tragic story, it's, like, the most beautiful thing about it, I feel, is their relationship. I think there's something to be said about surviving an apocalypse together, because between them and the couple in a quiet place... The rest of the world has gone to shit, so you really have nothing but your partner, so everything comes out. My rec for today is Daughters of Darkness, which is, I think, I picked it because I think it's a good movie to watch for Valentine's Day with your significant other, because uh, it is super horny. No, it's actually, it's very, it's very good, and it's got uh, a married couple who interacts with uh, Elizabeth Bathory. Which is very a very fun dynamic, and they play it in such a way where Elizabeth Bathory isn't necessarily the historical one, but she's got some sort of like darkness to her. Is all I'll really say. But I would describe it as uh, a horny vampire film, which I think is done done very very well. It is done very well. Yeah, I, I love it. There is every single second of that film is just dripping with horniness. It, it it really is. It's such a good Valentine's movie, and I'm I'm gonna have to go <laughs> as soon as I stop talking about it. I'm gonna recommend Sweetheart. Uh, Sweetheart is I think currently on Netflix. Yeah, that's um, we just watched it. It is a really strong portrayal of independence, especially when the couple slash coupled character arrives into the scene. It just shows this whole arc of this woman becoming her own person and departing from what that relationship held for her. Even just throughout the film, she's alone on an island, so we are not given a name to her. And when this character arrives, she's only ever referred to as Sweetheart, just like completely abandoning her identity, leaving her to forge that identity for herself in the end. Yeah, so for those of you out there, nothing wrong with being your own Valentine. So that'll do it on this sweet and sultry episode of the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm the sexy version of Matt Mendoza. I'm Anthony! We're going to have to take that back. Anthony, look at that! I just wanted the opposite of yours. Anthony, please do yours again. (laughs) I'm Anthony. I'm Anna. Do a sexy one. I don't need to. I'm the jawless, flapping tongue of Anthony. I don't need any different titles or ways of saying my name. I'm British. Thanks for tuning into the Hauntsville Cryptcast. Happy hauntings. See you in hell. And give your partner a little kiss for me. <laughs> <laughs>